Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 6. We have been uh, working through the book of Genesis. We took a short break for a, a mini-series, and now we're back uh, for the past uh, couple of weeks. And this morning we are in Genesis 6, verses 9 through 22, so verse 9 through the end. Uh, before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you that all we have is Christ. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for all that he is and all that he has done. And Father, what more could we possibly ask for or desire? You have given us your Son. Uh, you have given us him as our Savior, as uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as the the bridegroom of the church, and we thank you for Jesus, and we pray that even as we come now to your word in Genesis 6, that you would help us to, to understand Jesus more clearly, that you would grow us in our understanding of who he is and what he has done, and that we would rest more fully in the gospel this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Genesis 6, uh, beginning in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you, you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female." of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Well, the story of Noah's Ark is one of those great, memorable Bible stories. Uh, just about every children's Bible, storybook Bible ever includes it. Uh, in, in fact, when my older kids were younger, uh, there were two places I would look in a child's story Bible to kind of judge its theological uh, weight or accuracy, and those were the story of the fall and the story of the flood. You know, most story Bibles don't miss Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead, but many of them missed sin. I was also a bit of a stickler uh, for the artwork, but that's a different sermon. 
uh, it was amazing how different story Bibles, though, would, would wash over the flood. One day, they would say, God told Noah to build a boat because a flood was coming. And it kind of leaves one wondering, why is this flood coming? Couldn't God just stop it? Why does he tell Noah and no one else? It seems the idea of sin and judgment was just considered too mature for some readers. And yet, apart from sin and judgment, this story doesn't make much sense. And yet, it is also a story of hope. Where the first Adam failed, God raises up a new Adam, a new head for humanity, uh, this time Noah, to do what Adam failed to do, to obey, and to save humanity from what Adam did, bring judgment. Now, while the last few chapters in the book of Genesis spanned at least over a thousand years, the next three chapters span only one. Uh, the story slows down as we get a glimpse into, the year, uh, into a year in the life of Noah. And we're going to look at this story bit by bit, scene by scene, almost month by month, it seems. Uh, this week, we'll look at chapter 6, 9 through 22, which we just read, uh, and we'll look specifically at Noah as a, a new Adam, a new head for humanity. And what we'll see is first our need for a new Adam, and second, our, the obedience of the new Adam, third, the saving work of the new Adam, and fourth, the community of the new Adam. So first, our need, our need for this new Adam. Uh, you know, the most difficult part of the story of Noah is, of course, just about everything. Uh, people debate the flood, whether it was real, whether it covered the whole earth. People debate the ark. Uh, could it really hold all those animals? Where did they put the food? Where did they put the poop? Uh, but this morning, what we're going to talk about for a minute is that people debate God's justice through it all. Was it really just for God to wipe out an entire planet? Is this justice? Or does God just have anger issues? Maybe he needs to learn to lighten up and not take things so personally. And yet, I think we miss the point. You know, let's say somebody uh, comes into your house and begins to destroy your home and terrorize your wife and children and guests. What are you going to do about it? Uh, will you stand there and watch and just let them do it? Uh, well, maybe you'd say, well, I, I'd, uh, I'd call the police. Okay, uh, what that means is you're, you're going to use whatever force is necessary to restore order to your home, right? That's, that's what police do, right? God has given the government the power of the sword to maintain order, and police are that sword, right? Sometimes they use that power well, sometimes maybe not, but that is their God-given role to maintain order through the threat of force. Now, the difference between us and God in this scenario is that we oversee a, you know, a 1,500-square-foot home, but God is the ruler of heaven and earth. We are fellow creatures, also broken and sinful, but he is the creator of all, perfect and holy and true. We are fellow sinners. He is the righteous judge. And so if we, fallen sinful human beings, would justify using force to restore order to our homes, not knowing the thoughts and intentions of any given person's heart, does not God have the right, as the righteous judge who knows the heart, does not he have that same right to restore order to his house? And when we look at Genesis 6, right, this is actually the situation that we find. Now look at verses 11 through 13 again. 11 through 13 say this, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for 
The earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, I, I realize uh, we, we talked about how bad humanity was last week, but this is one of the main points of the flood. Humanity, since Adam, has been spiraling down, and things just keep getting worse and worse, chapter by chapter. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. And what that means is the earth was spoiled. It was marred. It was ruined. Uh, that, that word corrupt is used of things like clothing that has rotted or uh, a potter's clay that lost its shape and the, the vessel was destroyed. Well, what had spoiled God's world? It was filled with violence. Now notice that the echoes of Eden here, the, the kind of distorted echoes of Eden. God saw the earth was good in Genesis 1, but here he sees that his good world has been spoiled in verse 12. God created humanity to, to fill the earth with his image. Instead, it has been filled with violence. The image not of God, but of the evil one. God's people, rather than filling the earth with the, the beauty of his image and causing the world to prosper and flourish, have filled it with selfish violence and so spoiled and marred and corrupted God's good world. As children of Adam, we each pursue our own ends through subtle and sometimes not so subtle violence. Unkind words, a cold shoulder, social exclusion, yelling, fighting, abuse, murder. And the result is we make a mess out of God's good world. You might wonder uh, how the animals got roped into this. Uh, verse 12 says, all flesh has corrupted their way, not just all people. And if you remember back to verse 7, uh, God said he was going to blot out man and the animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens. So you might think, well, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, what did the animals do wrong after all? And while I think there's probably a couple tricky questions in there, at least one answer to the question is this. Uh, as the ground was affected by human sin back in chapter 3, so the animals, too, have been corrupted by human sin. Uh, verse 12 says, all flesh had corrupted their way. The violence on the earth was so great, even the animals were somehow taken up into it. Now, if that just seems fanciful to say, just consider what happens when people do things like beat their dogs. What happens to the dog? The dog often becomes violent and dangerous. Uh, what happens when matadors spear a bull? The bull is enraged. See, when people are cruel, even the animals are affected. All flesh on the earth had been corrupted. Moses is telling us that's how bad it had gotten. The whole earth was spoiled. There was nothing in all of God's creation that was untouched by human sin. Even the animals, all flesh, were distorted by human violence. Now, we often want to say things like, well, but what about innocent children? Now, Moses says all flesh had been corrupted. In other words, what he's saying, whether it's hard for us to hear or not, is that there were no innocent children because there was no innocent anybody. Uh, remember, whatever outward, our outward appearance might be, God knew their hearts, that they, that, uh, he knew what their hearts, uh, the condition of their hearts was. As we saw last week uh, in Genesis 6-5, it said that their hearts were only evil all the time. There was no way forward except to wipe the slate clean. Again, note, note the way this is phrased, right? The flood is God's response to the violence on the earth and the corruption of the human heart. 
Violence includes oppression and rape and murder. God is saying things were just so bad, there was no other way forward. God wants to cleanse the world of injustice. There was no other way but judgment. And this is the outcome of the old Adam, right? Adam turned from God, and though he himself, uh, it seems, turned back in faith, he fostered a family of violence. People who, like Adam, saw what they wanted and took it, irrespective of the health and well-being of others. It may be hard to imagine uh, the world being so bad, uh, but you, you, you may remember later in Genesis, Abraham will barter with God, as it were, for the lives of those in Sodom. And he will say, uh, if there were only 10 righteous people in Sodom, would you spare the city for those 10? And God says yes, right? God is, is both just and merciful. If there were even 10 people, 10 righteous people in Sodom, he would spare the whole city. Well, what we find here is that there don't seem to be even 10 righteous people in the whole earth. Noah and his family who enter the ark make only eight. And Noah, only Noah himself is actually called righteous. Human sin had really and truly corrupted the whole earth. Now, again, some would argue, well, sin, I mean, sin is just a construct after all. They, they, they say it's not real. I had one pastor, well, pastor, uh, tell me that sin is what people call it when they do something they think is bad. She didn't believe in sin, which meant, of course, she, she didn't believe in Jesus' death for sin either. But if there's no sin... Uh, then this world is actually exactly as it should be. I mean, who is to say it should be different if there's no sin? There's no injustice if there's no sin. Because if there's no sin, that means there's no standard for what is just. But if there is sin, and all we have to do is watch the news to know that that there is, or for that matter, look into our own hearts, uh, if there is sin, there is also punishment for sin. God the judge will come and make things right. Restore order to his world. If people are upset with God uh, for judging the world in Noah's day, we're often equally upset for God not judging the world in our day. Right? We say things like, well, where is God in all this? Why doesn't he put an end to this? Why doesn't he stop the evil and protect the innocent? And, of course, the answer, of course, is God is being patient with us. God is giving us time to repent, the Scriptures say. As he did for 120 years in the days of Noah, God is patient, giving people time to repent. And of course, you can't have it both ways, right? Either judgment will come now and it will come upon all, as in the days of Noah, or God will be patient and show patience to all now, giving us time to repent. Now, Jesus will return, however, right? He he will judge the world. Uh, Paul says in Acts 17.31 that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is the evidence that he is going to return and judge the world because God raised him up, seated him at his right hand, and gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. And as a righteous judge, he will come and make things right. In the meantime, God is being patient, giving us time, time to repent, time to turn from our sin, time to turn to our God to find forgiveness and mercy in Jesus. Yet I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So first, our need for the new Adam. Humanity uh, under the first Adam had filled the world with violence and spoiled God's good world. The result was judgment coming upon the earth. 
Beginning in Genesis 3, however, God promised a seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent, a new Adam, as it were, who would undo what Adam did. Right? That, that's who we are looking for in the genealogies as we read in chapter 4 and chapter 5. That's who Lamech, the son of Seth, believed had come in his son Noah. The seed of the woman who would come and put things right. So second, let's look at the obedience of this new Adam. Sin had made a mess of God's world and only righteousness could put it back together. The only problem is that we are all sinful. Uh, we all make a mess of things. As, as I sit and watch sitcoms with Deborah uh, very often, I am tortured as I watch people make the same dumb and, yes, sinful decisions episode after episode, uh, which you know those decisions are going to get them into trouble and be the source of the tension for that episode. And, and uh, I, I frequently exclaim aloud, why do they keep doing that? And Deborah just rolls her eyes at me. This is, this is the way sitcoms work. Why do they keep doing that? But of course, the, the real question is, why do we keep doing that? Human beings keep making a mess of things. We need someone who can come and put things right. And that person in the pre-flood world was Noah. God sent Noah to save humanity from their sin. That is, to save the human race from utter annihilation because of their sin. And what do we know uh, about this guy? How do we know that Noah is the guy? Well, look at the, the first and last verses of our text. Verse 9 says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then verse 22 says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And what do we know about Noah? Uh, not a whole lot, but we know that he is righteous and blameless and obedient, walking with God. Last week we saw, uh, uh, or the last man that we saw walk with God was delivered from death, Enoch, you may remember. Enoch walked with God and God took him. Well, now here's Noah. He, he too walks with God and so we're, we're clued in, right? He too will be delivered from death. Noah's obedience, though, is crucial here, isn't it? He's not perfect. He's not sinless. We'll see that in the story. But he does obey God when it counts, right? If Noah doesn't build the ark, the whole human race is wiped out, but he builds it, and they aren't. Noah's obedience is crucial. It, it, it gets humanity through the flood. It saves them from the judgment, but it doesn't save them from their sin. See, we, we will see post-flood that human beings are no less sinful than they were before. Something more than Noah's obedience is needed. You see, Noah is really just a, a signpost, an anticipation, a, a teaser, a trailer, a preview of someone more righteous and more blameless. Jesus, God in the flesh, was obedient. He always did what pleased his Father. He kept the law perfectly. He was righteous. And he always lived in right relationship with those around him. He was blameless before God. The word blameless is the same word used for the unblemished sacrifices in the Old Testament. And, and that was Jesus, a spotless lamb. Noah's righteousness was, was good and important. If it weren't for Noah's obedience, we, we wouldn't be here. But as we go on, we see Jesus' righteousness is much more important. In Jesus, we find a person who truly succeeds where Adam failed. He obeys where Adam disobeyed, and by his obedience, he will undo what Adam did. So we need a new Adam, and we need a new Adam who obeys where we fail. 
Now let's look third at the saving work of this new Adam. You know, when we think about salvation, uh, when we think about God saving us, what we want is for God to free us from trouble. We want God to make life easy, right? To take away hardship, to free us from uh, the consequences of our and other people's sins. Uh, We want a life of ease and comfort. And we think, well, if God loves us, he should want to give it to us. And if God wants to give it to us, we should have it. And and out of this, uh, we come up with the the so-called problem of evil, right? If God is in control and loves me, why do bad things happen? We just can't fathom why, right? Why, God? Why, why did you allow this to happen? Why didn't you stop it? Why didn't this work out? Why didn't you heal him or her or me? Why? Why? And of course, what we so often leave out as we ask that question, which is a fine question, by the way. The psalmists often ask it. Why? Why, God? What are you doing? But what we often leave out is God's wisdom, Uh, Yes, he is in control, and yes, he loves us, but in his wisdom, he knows some things that we don't, and so he allows hardship and trouble for his good and wise purposes. And this is what we see with Noah, right? So what we want is we want to live above the flood, but God in his wisdom wants to bring us through it. You know, God begins to give Noah instructions in verse 14, and, and we'll talk more about the ark and the animals in a, in a later sermon, but I'll just mention two things now. First, if you look at the dimensions of this thing, it is huge. Uh, it really is big enough to hold two of every kind of animal, and, and part of that is because, by the way, it, didn't have to, uh, it wouldn't have needed, for example, every breed of dog, right, just two dogs. Uh, and so the number of animals needed on the ark, while still large, would have been smaller than you might at first think. Uh, Deborah's parents took us to the, the Ark Encounter a few years ago. You know what this is, right? It's the, it's the life-size uh, Ark uh, down in Kentucky, I think. Uh, and, and while there are some aspects of their interpretation of the Bible that I would disagree with, I would still recommend going. It's, it's simply amazing to see this life-sized Ark uh, with some creative conjecture about how things might have looked. It was pretty incredible. And so, yes, it is big, and of course it had to be. Uh, But second, what's interesting is, uh, though it's large, its dimensions are actually exactly what they needed to be as well. There there are uh, a lot of flood stories in the ancient world. And you know that almost every ancient culture has a flood story. Uh, The flood was part of the common memory of ancient peoples, which makes sense. If there was a flood, people would remember it. Uh, And uh, one of those ancient stories described the ark as a raft. Now, that probably wouldn't work. Uh, Another story described the ark equivalent as a cube, a perfect cube, uh, which would have been a terrible vessel in which to wait out the flood because it would have been tossed around uh, like dice on the surface of the water. But the dimensions given here in Genesis are actually fairly similar to large shipping vessels today. The dimensions are the same, and in fact, the size is similar to what is called a, a feeder container ship today. So it's a Uh, relatively similar to some shipping vessels on the water today. These dimensions, 300 by 50 by 30, given thousands of years ago, are just the right dimensions for such a ship to weather the storm and the flood. And yet what I want you to notice is this. Uh, God didn't lift Noah above the flood. He brought him through it. It would not have been a comfortable voyage, as great as the ark surely was. It was no cruise ship. 
right? There were no amenities, right? No room service, no rudder. That's something to think about. There was no rudder on the ark, no steering wheel, no helm. God has Noah build a boat in which to weather the storm of life and essentially says, don't worry, Noah, I'll steer. You just get in the boat. And the way Noah saves humanity is not by raising them above the flood, but by building a boat and bringing them through it, through the flood, through the chaos, through the waters of death. And this is always the way God works. Uh, This is what the psalmist prays in Psalm 23. You may remember, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Not that God will help me go around the valley of the shadow of death or build a bridge over the valley of the shadow of death, but God will bring me through. The archetype for this, of course, is not Noah, uh, nor the psalmist, but Jesus. He is the new Adam. Scripture calls him the, the second and last Adam, the head of a new humanity. Jesus was not saved from death, but through it. He died, and the Father brought him through in his resurrection. This is the pattern of salvation through death unto life. We see it in Noah. We see it more clearly in Jesus. And the reason this is the pattern is in part, of course, because of the first Adam's sin. Adam brought sin and death into the world, and now the only way to life is through death. We spend our lives scrambling for life, trying to save our lives And Jesus says, whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Life comes through death. Jesus died, and then he rose. And now he invites us to walk with him through the valley, through the flood, through the difficulties of life, promising not a life of comfort and ease, but to steer us through, to bring us through life's trials into life's bounty on the other side. We want to live above the flood, But God sent Jesus to bring us through it. He went through and came out on the other side himself. He invites us then to walk with him through the flood and and walking with him to find life with him and in him now and forever. So that even if we die, we have the hope that as Jesus rose, so we will rise from the dead on the last day to live in the body and the presence of our Father forever and ever. So So our need for a new Adam is that human sin, violence, corruption uh, had come upon the whole earth. Even today, that corruption lives within our hearts. Second, the obedience of the new Adam. We need one who can fully obey the Father to undo what Adam did and to do what we could never do. And third, the saving work of the new Adam is to bring us through. As Noah went through the flood of God's wrath, so Jesus went through the flood of God's wrath at the cross. So he brings us through the flood and now invites us into that, into our trials and hardship and difficulties and even death knowing that life will be found on the other side. The fourth, and then finally, the community of this new Adam. You know, a perpetual challenge uh, of talking about God saving people has always been, well, who gets saved? Uh, Who gets to be saved? Who gets to go on to the ark? Uh, Who decides? Is it fair? What part do we play? And while we can't address every aspect of that question in the few minutes that we have left... There are a few aspects that are addressed in this story. Uh, Look again at verse 18. Verse 18, God says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. In verse 18, God establishes his covenant with Noah. The the word for establish there doesn't mean make from scratch, but confirm uh, an already existing relationship, right? God was already gracious toward Noah. He confirms that by way of a covenant. 
Part of the the reason God chose Noah is because Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his day, verse 9. For God's new plan to, or for God's plan to work, this new Adam had to obey as, as Noah did. But what about Noah's wife and sons? What about their wives? Uh, were, were Noah's wife and sons and sons' wives, were they the obedient type? What, what do we know about them? Well, in chapter 7, verse 1, so the, the verse after our text, again, we read that Noah was, Noah was righteous. His righteousness is emphasized. Genesis 7, 1 says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You. The word you there is is masculine singular. Noah is righteous before God. So he and his household are saved. There are two important implications of this. The first is, as we, as we look through Scripture, we say this is the way that God tends to work, through families, through households. God saves Noah and his family from the flood. God saves the Israelites and their children in, in, uh, uh, in the exodus from Egypt. In Jeremiah 31, the, the great promise of the new covenant, God says he will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter says the promise is for you and your children. In Acts 16.31, Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul baptized the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 1.16. See, God repeatedly works through households from beginning to end. And so though the covenant is made with Noah, his wife and children benefit from that. Now, each will have to make their own choice as well. We, we will see in the later story that Ham makes that choice poorly. But the point is this, there are covenant blessings and benefits for the whole household because of Noah. The second thing to say here, though, is that actually this is the way the gospel works. It's the way the gospel always works, right? Jesus alone is righteous, not just in that day, but in any and every day. He alone obeys the Father. And so the Father makes a covenant with the Son. The Father sent the Son into the world to accomplish a certain work. And in the resurrection, God raises up the son and gives him life for completing that work. He brings him through the flood. And then the father says, whoever believes in the son will also reap the benefits of his work. See, the father saves Jesus from death because of his righteousness and also all who belong to Jesus by faith. He is the covenant head. We are his covenant children, his family who benefit from his work. And yet there's more. While we are saved not because of our righteousness, but because of Jesus, while we are by nature uh, sinful, leaning toward violence, selfishness, self-destruction, Jesus comes to both bring us through and to make us new. In fact, this is where Noah's work falls short, doesn't it? Noah brings us through, but but he cannot make us new. Humanity is no different after the flood. The, The earth is cleansed, but people are still the same. And so Jesus comes to obey the Father to bear our violence, to take the corruption of this world upon himself in his death, to satisfy divine justice, and to bring us through to the other side, and then to give us his new creation spirit. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is also given to us so that we can be new creatures. We can uh, live lives not of selfish violence, but of sacrificial love, following in the footsteps of our Savior. We come through and are made new in the new, the second, and the last Adam, Jesus. Jesus has done what Adam failed to do, obey. He has done what we on our own could not do, obey. And in his obedient death uh, unto resurrection, he has won for us forgiveness and new life in his spirit. Undoing what Adam did 
bringing us through and making us new. Let's take just a moment and pray and ask the Father. Ask the Father to show us Jesus, to give us faith in him, the new Adam, who can bring us through and make us new. Let's pray together. I'll close this in just a moment. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his work in the the cross and the resurrection. Uh, We thank you that he is a a new and better Adam, uh, better than the first, uh, better than any type that has come before him. We pray, Father, that you would help us to look to Jesus, to see him in all of his glory, to rest in his work, to rejoice in the forgiveness that we have in him to know that that new life is ours in him by his spirit. Help us then to go out from here and walk in that new life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.